Greetings and welcome. My name is James White. We've been studying the Christian scriptures, their inspiration, their consistency, and how they've come down to us. Right now, we're looking specifically at the field of textual criticism. That is, how was the text of the New Testament especially transmitted down to us over time? We know that it was a handwritten document for many, many centuries, as any ancient work would be at this particular point in time in history. How do we know that that handwriting process did not insert all sorts of problems in the text? You probably have heard people liken the copying of New Testament manuscripts to the child's game of telephone, uh, where you sit in a circle and one person whispers something to the other person, and they repeat it, and by the time it comes all the way around the circle, it's changed substantially from where it started. That really isn't exactly a good analogy as to how New Testament manuscripts are passed on. First of all, copying something that is written is a different process than hearing something whispered into your ear, obviously. Uh, but beyond that, we don't just have one line of manuscripts coming down to us. It's not just one manuscript was copied, then it was destroyed, then the ma that manuscript was copied, then, then its, it, its original was destroyed. No, we actually have many instances where we can tell that an ancient manuscript, the person who wrote it, had more than one manuscript in front of them. And so there's all sorts of interconnections and interweavings in the textual history of the New Testament that, again, is actually a good thing. For though it causes us to have to do study to determine uh, exactly the nature of that manuscript, it also is very important in establishing that no one came along and just simply changed everything in the Bible into the opposite of what was originally intended by the authors. But the big question people have is, all right, I look at my Bible, no matter what translation you might be reading in English or in other languages, I look at my Bible and there's these troubling notes. For example, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, in the King James Version, in the New King James Version, in English translations, or if you're looking at an older version of uh, translation into your own language, for example, you will see in 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. This would be a reference to the deity of Christ. So that's an important text if it's referring to Jesus as God. And yet, if you have, for example, the New American Standard Bible or the NIV in English translations, or if you have a new modern translation into your own language, it's been done, say, in the past 20 or 30 years, what you might have there is instead of God was manifest in the flesh, it might say he who was manifest in the flesh. Now, he who is very different than God. And for many people, that's very troubling because it sounds like there's a, a grand conspiracy going on. Someone's trying to deny the deity of Christ, or for others, they might be saying the older manuscripts are trying to, the older versions are trying to smuggle it in. Is there a conspiracy? Or is there a perfectly understandable, rational reason why a translation would say, he who was manifest in the flesh, or a translation might say, God was manifest in the flesh. We'll be looking specifically at how to answer that, but let me give you another example of the opposite kind of variation. In John chapter 1, verse 18, in some translations, in translations based upon uh, older texts, you might have the, the phrase, the only begotten Son. No one has seen God any time. 
the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him, is how the King James puts it. But modern translations don't use the term Son. They have phrases like God the only Son, or the unique God, or, or he who is by nature God. They'll be trying to express the same concept, but instead of using Son, they'll use God. So the difference there is between the word God and Son. How do we understand these things? How do we, is there, are people trying to change the theology of the Bible? No, not in any way, shape, or form. Instead, what's going on here is these translations are dealing with the underlying Greek manuscripts. And in the underlying Greek manuscripts, there is a variation between, in John 1.18, between the word son and the word God. In 1 Timothy 3.16, it is a variation uh, between two words, God and he who. And as we look, we'll discover that he who is a very similar word to the word God. And we'll see why that is in just a few moments. Let's look at the, let's look at the text as it would appear, remember, in the unseal text. Remember, those original writings, those early manuscripts, what were they written in? They were written in all capitals, and they had no space between the words. So in 1 Timothy 3.16, here on the screen, you can see the first three lines of Greek text is what we would have if you were to read it as, uh, uh, in, in one form, and the second line, the other form. And most people can't see what the difference between those particular words is. I mean, they look identical to the untrained eye. Let me change the only difference between them so you can see it a little bit easier. There is a difference between the words God and the word he who. Let me take them out of the Greek so you can see it for yourself. In the ancient Greek manuscripts, especially in the early period when they were using papyri and they had to be very careful about how much they were writing. I mean, they literally had to be concerned about how much writing material they had available to them. They would abbreviate particular words. The particular words that they would abbreviate were called, called the nomina sacra, specifically the sacred names. The word God, for example, was abbreviated, and here you see it at the top, theta sigma in capital forms, and then they would put a line over top of it to show that this is a nomina sacra. This is an abbreviation. Now, think for me, with me for just a moment. This is being written on papyri. What is papyri made of? It's made of leaves that have been laid crosswise to one another and dried and pressed together. Now, that's still going to have a certain kind of texture to it, will it not? Even leather once vellum is being used, leather, animal skins are being used as the source. Do not, does not leather have a grain to it? Does it not have uh, some kind of, of pattern to it? Now, as we look at these two words, we see that the os, God, when it is abbreviated as theta sigma, two letters, and then the word he who is has, omicron sigma. But the omicron, the only difference between the omicron and the theta is one little line inside of it, and then the sigma is the exact same form. Now, if you're right reading someone else's handwriting, and sometimes we, we have to read what other people are writing, and sometimes it can be rather challenging, can it not be? You're, you're a scribe, and you're copying someone else's handwriting from papyri or leather. 
think for just a moment what that involves, especially in a situation like this. Can you see how easy it would have been and how honest an error it would have been for a scribe to see the os and think it meant hos or vice versa? In fact, interestingly enough, when we look at all the manuscripts of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we collate them together, it's a pretty even division between the manuscripts that read God and the manuscripts that read he who. And so what do you honestly do? You honestly put it into your translation. You make a note of it in the footnotes. And when you're preaching on these, these texts, you do not make this the only text upon which you demonstrate, for example, the deity of Christ. That is the honest and open thing to do. One of those two readings is the original. There's no question about that. It's not that the original has disappeared. The question is, one or two small lines differentiate these two words. There's no conspiracy. No one's trying to take the deity of Christ out of the Bible, or no one's trying to sneak it into the Bible, or anything along those lines. It's an honest difference between two words that look very, very much the same. I hope that helps you to avoid some of those who would try to uh, create improper impress impressions that there are conspiracies involved in what's going on. Let's take a look at that other variant that we mentioned, John chapter 1, verse 18. Now, in this one, the earliest manuscripts of John, which we have, which we saw in our previous study, manuscripts P66 and P75, these date from around the year AD 200. Both of the earliest manuscripts of John, as well as two of the earliest unsealed manuscripts, that is, the great vellum manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, all read monogenes theos, literally unique God or the only son who is God or the one and only God. These are various ways of translating that particular Greek phrase. So the earliest manuscripts going all the way back to the closest to the time of the writing say theos, God. But the bulk of later manuscripts, and realize that the vast majority of the 5,300 Greek manuscripts are written after about 1,000 AD. They are produced by scribes during the medieval period. The vast majority of those say monogenes huios, which means the only begotten son. Now, why might there be a difference? It's not the same type of situation we have uh, in 1 Timothy 3.16. It's not exactly parallel because the two words don't look a whole lot alike. Why might there be a difference here? Well, again, scholars look at this and they can see the reason why this might be. You see, monogenes theos is unique. This would be the only place that it's found in the New Testament. But monogenes huios, the only begotten son, is the normal way that that phrase is found in the Gospel of John. And you and I, to this day, if we are copying something, either by hand or especially in our culture today, I have to do a lot of copying on the keyboard. And I might have a book next to me or some type of a printout, and I'm typing this material in. It's not a cut and paste situation. And as I'm looking back and forth and I'm typing along, if I am familiar with the kind of text that I am copying, which the scribes would be in regards to biblical text, it is very easy for me to start filling in and most of the time, I'm right, because I'm, I sort of know the phraseology, especially if I'm copying some type of theological work. 
I can sort of guess what the next word is going to be, and I'm, I'm just going along, and I'll frequently look back, and, oh, that's not what he said, and I have to backspace that out. Well, backspacing things out is a whole lot easier than going and killing another cow for another piece of leather. So it was much more difficult to make changes for the scribes, and sometimes I don't catch it. Sometimes I look back, and I've actually changed what I'm copying, not purposefully, it was just simply an error of sight on my part. We've all done this. Any student who's, who's written a paper and has copied these things out has made this kind of error. The same thing took place in the copying of New Testament manuscripts. In most probability, someone saw the term monogonase, and since they know the Gospel of John, they know that the next word after monogonase should be quios, but... It was theos, and so they make the change. They're not trying to change the theology. It's not that they, they thought that this was a bad thing to call Jesus God or anything like that, but they just simply went with the more familiar terminology. That's the most probable reason. Now, some would say, oh, no, uh, there's got to be a theological reason for that. But, you know, if there's a simple reason that, that is common to our own experience, that's probably the best way to go with it in understanding it. Now, I'd like to illustrate another kind of very common uh, scribal error that we find in the manuscripts of the New Testament. Because some people say, oh, there's 200,000 or 400,000 variants. What they're doing is they're counting not only variants that have no impact on the meaning of the text at all, uh, or a spelling change or something like that, but they're counting every single manuscript that reads one way as a variant. So if there are... Uh, uh, 2,000 manuscripts that uh, are impacted by a particular text, that contain a particular text, and 500 of them read one way, and 1,500 read the other way, that's 2,000 variants. It's actually just one variant, but since it's found in all those manuscripts. And so these huge numbers are advertised by people, when in reality, 99% of the text has absolutely no variation at all. And the small number of variants that really take a lot of study, some of them are important. We've looked at two of them. But the vast majority of them do not in any way, shape, or form impact the gospel or the message of the New Testament. The vast majority of these variants are from either errors of sight or errors of hearing. What do you mean by how could you have an error of hearing in the New Testament? Really simple. After Christianity became legal, what happened? Well, there was an explosion of copying of the New Testament. And you could now use a scriptorium. Now, in a scriptorium, you had one person sitting up front, and they would read the text, and then you'd have a group full of scribes who would copy down what had been read. That way, you could make multiple copies at the same time. Instead of just one copy, instead of just one example, you would end up with multiple copies being made at the same time. It would be much cheaper, and if you wanted to have a number of them made, maybe even that's how Sinaiticus and Vaticanus were made. It's difficult to say, but the scriptorium would introduce the idea of errors of hearing. So, for example, we can tell that in, in the ancient days, the uh, pronouns for us and you or them, some of these pronouns were pronounced very much alike, and many of the variants, they even look alike in, in the written form, but many of the variants make sense that someone heard it in a different way. And even when they write their erroneous transcription, it still makes sense because you could say, uh, we would hope that our joy would be made full or your joy would be made full. The our or yours 
were very similar in pronunciation. And so if it was early in the morning or the person who was reading it uh, you know, was just not as, as clear in his enunciation, it would be very easy to understand how a scribe could make that kind of, a, of an error. It does not involve any kind of conspiracy or desire to change the text. But let me illustrate one of the most common errors that we can find in, in the text in the New Testament. And the, since we can identify these errors, then we can identify what the original was. We don't have to worry about conspiracies and people trying to change the Bible. In the English language, one of the most common endings to a word, some of the common endings are I-N-G or T-I-O-N. In whatever language might be your language, in almost every language, there are common endings, common grammatical endings that are used repeatedly in a page of text. And so when you are copying a line of written text, and in the English language, you come, for example, to ing, a letter ending in ing, a word ending in ing. You write that word down. We're handwriting, we won't even use the computer here, though it works in the same way. You write that word, that, that word down. The last letters you wrote were ing. Your I goes back to the original, and there's ing, and you continue on. But the problem is, it's a different ing. It's a word or two down the line, or even worse, it's on the line below. Now, sometimes that results in gibberish because you've cut out something that's really necessary, but sometimes if there's only a word or two between those two appearances, the same ending of a word, it still makes sense, and so you don't catch it. This is an error called homoiteluton, the same endings, and people in every language make this kind of error. And since we know that, that helps us to identify what the original is. So many times when we encounter something that's missing in the Greek New Testament, we can see that it's because of the error of homoiteluton. Here's an example. In 1 John 3.1, your Bible might read something along the lines of, Behold, what great love the, the Father has given to us in order that we might be called the children of God. And then the verse ends, and it goes on to the next verse. Or your Bible might say, Behold, what great a love the Father has given to us in order that we might be called the children of God, and such we are. Now again, whether we are or are not the children of God is not determined by this one text. But the question is, when John wrote his epistle, did he say, in order that we might be called the children of God, and we are the children of God? Now, someone, maybe devious or just wants to sell some books or something, uh, might say, ah, see, uh, some people are trying to insert the idea that we are the children of God. Or they might say, ah, some people are trying to deny that we are truly the children of God. Is that the case, or is there an obvious explanation for this kind of variation. Obviously, there is an obvious explanation for this kind of variation. Here on the screen, I have given you the, the verb for that we might be called, and then the little phrase, and we are. But to help you to see it, let me emphasize the final letters in the Greek language. Kleithomen kai es men. You hear kleitho men kai es men. Men, 
the very same three letters, mu, epsilon, nu, men, are found at the end of Clathomen that we might be called, and the children of God came before this in the Greek word order, and then you have chi s men, and such we are. Now, it would be very, very simple for a scribe to write the word Clathomen. You finish writing mu, epsilon, nu, you go back to your original, you see mu, epsilon, nu, but instead of at the end of Clathomen, it's at the end of Esmen, and you continue from there. What is the result? You have inadvertently deleted the phrase, and we are. And so you see, when we see this kind of variant, and we are able to identify it in the manuscripts, it only increases our confidence of the actual reading. You might say, how can it increase your confidence? Well, because we know the kind of errors that scribes make. And so when we encounter those errors and we see that other uh, streams of the manuscript tradition do not contain it, there really isn't any question about what the original was. Now, for the purposes of full disclosure, critical editions of the Greek New Testament will include this information so that a person has this information right in front of them. They're not just going on what some committee tells them to believe. We put the information out there. But there really isn't any question about what John originally wrote in 1 John 3, 1, even though a variant arose in the transmission of the text. But let me emphasize something very quickly as we're running out of time. I am so thankful that both of these readings are still in the manuscript tradition, 1 John 3, 1, as well as 1 Timothy 3, 16, as well as John 1, 18. Why? Let me emphasize again the tenacity of the text. What do I mean by that? Once a reading appears in the manuscript tradition, it stays there. It doesn't just disappear. Why should that cause any Christian in the audience to rejoice? And why should that cause any skeptical person to, to maybe think twice? Because what it means is even when I'm examining a variant where there's two different readings, I have absolute confidence that one of those two is the original. You see, if even errors don't disappear, that means the original has not disappeared. And the key for most people is, I want to know that the original is still available to me. And the fact is, it is still available. We can look at the manuscripts of the New Testament, and we can have confidence that what we're reading is not some new modern innovation. It is not something where someone has decided that they're going to edit the message of the gospel and change things. Because of the tenacity of the New Testament text, the original is still there. We may have to, in certain instances, do in-depth study to determine what that original reading was. But our confidence is that one of those readings was the original one. And this is only impacting a small percentage of the text. In the vast majority of instances, you're not impacted by textual variation as you're reading the Greek text and translating it into other languages. And so I hope as we have given you this study, you have seen that God has protected his text by causing it to be copied and distributed all over the known world very quickly so that no one could ever gather all the manuscripts up and make changes. As a result, those first Christians, who were not professional scribes, may have made spelling errors or errors of sight, but because God has given us so many manuscripts, 
we are able, through the practice of textual criticism, to reconstruct in every instance that original text. That's our confidence. We're thankful to God for it. Thank you.